0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben Petock. I, well, along with my wife, we lead the teen group here. And um, I just want to first of all say thanks to everybody who was praying for us on our mission trip two weeks ago. Uh, it was awesome. God did a lot of really awesome things in our team, through our team. It was seriously a great week So, um, down in Kensington. So we really appreciate all of that, all the support. Uh, today we're going to be in Genesis 38. Before we get started, um, let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, Uh, We thank you for your word, and we thank you for um, the opportunity to gather and to hear from you, and we pray that you would speak to us today, Lord, that you would just help us to know you in a deeper way, and um, that you would help us to take things into our lives and apply them, and and, um, as always, be conformed to the image of Christ more and more each day. So we love you, and thank you. lift up this time and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, so we will be in Genesis 38, we'll be doing a little jumping around today, so bear with me. Um, Genesis 38, in my opinion, probably the weirdest passage in the Bible, if you're asking me. Uh, and I didn't really want to do it this week, to be honest. Uh, I kept praying, like, alright, Lord, uh, you know, we're doing Jesus in every story, types of Christ, what do you want me to do? And He kept bringing it back to this passage. So uh, it, it does have some mature themes, I know it's summer, I think we have elevated numbers of kids, so we'll be treading lightly, I guess if you want to call it that. Um, but we're going to do our best. So before we jump into uh, Genesis 38, I'm going to give a little, a little bit of backstory here. So the book of Genesis starts off obviously with creation, goes to Noah, but then it starts picking up on narratives and it starts off with Abraham, uh, who is the father of Israel, and it follows him for a long time. And then after him, it goes to his son, Isaac, and it goes after him to Jacob. And then after that, it goes to Joseph. It's almost like a baton race. They hand off the baton and then the Bible kind of follows them through and that's how it goes. And then just as the story of Joseph starts to pick up and gets interesting, it stops and it shifts to Judah and it throws in this really weird story that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything because literally, I've, I've gone through it. I don't know how it connects to the life of Joseph at all. It, it's, you know, it's the weirdest thing. So for the longest time I've always read this been confused by it, because it seems like, okay, weird placement, God, to put this in the Bible, right? Weird that it's in here at all, um, but then where it's located just makes it even more conspicuous in my mind. I, I wrestled with it for a long time, and um, I think the Lord kind of showed me the, the meaning eventually. So let's, let's recap 37. So in chapter 37, this uh, is where we see Joseph. Joseph has 11 brothers, and Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob, and naturally his brother's don't really care for that so much, and they don't really care for Joseph. So they conspire to kill him, and then Judah pipes up, he's like, Yeah, you know, he's our brother, maybe we shouldn't kill him. We can make money off of him, let's sell him to slavery. So, like a good brother, they sell their brother into slavery, right? Uh, that's what brothers do. And uh, yeah, no, not really. Anyway, um, so he gets sold off to slavery, he's heading down to Egypt. And you're wondering, like, hey, what's going to happen? It's like, you know, the Millennium Falcon takes off on Tatooine, and all of a sudden it stops, and it moves over to this other story, okay? Um, And I'm going to summarize verses 1 through 10. You can read them on your own. You'll understand why I'm summarizing. But basically, um, 1 through 10, so it shifts to Judah. So it says about a little bit after the time that they'd sold Joseph into slavery, uh, Judah, meets a guy named Hira, they become friends, he's from a town called Adullam, that's why he's called Hira the Adullamite, and he meets a man named Shua, Shua has a daughter, we don't know what Shua's daughter's name is, but Judah marries her, all we know is that she's a Canaanite, and we know that the Canaanites were bad news, so if you remember Abraham in the book of Genesis, when he sends his servant to go get him a a wife for his son Isaac, he says specifically, do not get one of the Canaanite women, they are bad news, stay away from them, and so Judah was supposed to as well, and he didn't. And it's not going to go super great for him, and it's apparent. So um, yeah, so he does what he's not supposed to. He marries her, but he, uh, he marries her anyway and has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now Ur his firstborn, his oldest, marries a woman named Tamar, uh, but it says that God was not pleased with Er. says he's a wicked man, doesn't say specifically what he did, just that he was wicked and that God kills him, uh, ends his life. So Tamar is now a widow. And Judah talks to her, talks to his next in line son, Onan, and says, Okay, uh, this is what you need to do. You need to go take Tamar as your wife and raise up an heir. So that that can be a little confusing to us. In order to understand that, we need to understand the law of what was called the leveret marriage. If you want to keep your finger in 38 and turn over to Genesis, I'm sorry, not Genesis, Deuteronomy 25. it's what's called the, the leveret marriage okay now you might see leveret and think oh levi this has something to do with the priesthood no it has nothing to do with the priesthood lever is the latin for brother-in-law or husband's brother and this is where we get the name for leveret marriage so in verse 5 of chapter 25 of deuteronomy if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger her husband's brother shall go into her and take as his wife, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. Uh, I'm losing my sweat. Dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, "My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel." He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of, this, of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of the house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had the sandal pulled off. So a strange name for a house, but there it is. Uh, so, what, what's actually going on here? So, um, back in this time, uh, having a lineage was very important, and having heirs and sons, particularly, were also very important. Uh, I was speaking with our resident Hebrew expert, Herb, this morning, if you know him. Uh, one of the things he pointed out was in the Jewish mind, um, it, having an heir, having perpetuation, it meant it was almost like your memory was still alive, right? And that, that was kind of what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be, as it says here, blotted out. Okay? Forgotten. Like, as if he never existed. So, so what they would do is, uh, they would kind of work around it. So, if you, were, if you had a wife, and you, if you're a man, you had a wife, you died, and you didn't have any kids to carry on your name, um, or your lineage, uh, basically, the God instituted this way of kind of working around that, where the next-in-line brother would take on your widow as his wife, and the first son that she... Uh, produced would be the heir of the dead brother. And so in that sense, he would kind of continue on and move forward and keep the name going, right? And not only that, but inheritance was tied into all of this. And so, um, so yeah, so there's a lot of this where it's designed to help, uh, you know, the lineage and, and make sure that nobody was forgotten. It was also designed to help the, the widows as well. So if you were a widow back in this time, uh, your, your proposition, uh, or your, your likelihood of being married again is pretty slim. People who were guys who are looking to get married they are looking for younger wives because they're healthier they're stronger you know there's a lot they have a lot going for them and so why would you take on maybe an older widow when you could just get a a younger bride right so in one sense they were they were in trouble and that they couldn't it wasn't likely they're going to get married again furthermore uh if you didn't have any kids you really had no retirement plan back in that time they didn't have nursing homes, you know, there was no Medicare or anything like that. If you didn't have someone to take care of you in your old age, you were just going to be basically a beggar uh, and, and die a beggar. And so that was also viewed as obviously not good. Um, so, so this law, is, it sounds kind of weird to us, but um, in fact it was designed by God to protect people and, and things like that. Um, then, obviously, in the book of Genesis, Moses hadn't come on the scene yet, he hadn't actually written down the law, so this was a practice that was occurring even before Moses came onto the scene, okay? So, with that being said, you know, because you need, you need to understand that part of it in order to understand the rest of this passage, and other passages, like the book of Ruth, for example, where this, where this comes up. <clears throat> um, so, so Onan says, okay, he marries, he marries Tamar, but uh, he was very wicked as well, and God wasn't happy with him, so kills Onan as well. And so now Tamar's two for two in the husband department. And uh, now she sees that Judah has one son left. And Judah sees that as well. So uh, you can go ahead and turn back to Genesis 38. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah understands the situation. He realizes that he's only got one son left, which is his lineage, right? And he's nervous because she's got a bad track record, and he doesn't want his son to die. Not only in his lineage, but hey, having your own kids die, not the best experience ever, right? So he's, he's, he's looking out for himself primarily, though. And he comes up with this excuse where, okay, listen, he's, he's young. Wait till he gets older, and then I'll, I'll give him to you. You just go live with your dad, and, and I'll come find you. And she's like, okay. So she goes, and it's, we know his intentions. He has no real intention of following through on this promise, right? He's just trying to get her out of his hair, out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. Hopefully, this situation will rectify itself. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. So, picking up in verse 12, <clears throat> in the course of time, the wife of Judah... Shua's daughter died, so Judah's wife passes away, so he's a single man now. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite, who was, we mentioned earlier. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So time goes by. We don't know exactly how much, probably years. Uh, and Judah loses his wife. He goes up to conduct some business, shearing his sheep. Comes into the neighborhood of Tamar. And she gets word that Judah's in town. And she looks and finds out, hey, Sheila's looking older. Why, haven't, why am I not his wife at this point, Right. Um, And so she connects the dots and realizes, oh, Judah was never actually going to give him to me. He's just hoping I'll just go away or something, right? So she decides to take matters into her own hands. Uh, She puts on a veil, and she goes out and uh, sets herself up, as we'll see here, um, as a prostitute. Fifteen, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. I don't know. I don't think that's the going rate today, but at this time, a young goat, a young goat was valuable, right? You could survive for a few days off a young goat, at least a few days, depending on how hungry you were. And also, goats, you could trade them. You know, if you had somebody else who was looking to start a flock, you know, that could be valuable. So, yeah. Good, good, good value there. It's verse 17. Uh, oh, yeah, picking up middle of 17. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, and he said, what pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she's basically like, okay, young goat, sounds good, uh, but I don't really trust that you're going to deliver. What are you going to put down as a deposit to make sure I get what's mine? And, and so uh, she chooses... Three things that we're going to identify him. His family signet, something they would wear around their necks at this time, identify the family crest and you know they would stamp things with it to show that it was there. So um, again, identifying of Judah. His staff, branches, you know, they all grow differently. And so uh, this is something that Judah would have been very familiar with, would have been very specific to him. And his cord, we don't really know what it, what it is exactly. Your translation may say bracelets, some kind of woven string or something, right? So again, uh, these are all things that are going to identify Judah. She's going to want these later. Um, yeah, it just, gets, it just gets weirder. So in verse 19. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. <clears throat> and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So you got to understand this, this whole scenario is not that unusual with cult prostitution and things like that. Uh, there were temples, uh, obviously the false gods where um, prostitution was a ritual. Sort of thing, and they would use them for you know rituals to help with fertility and crops and things like that. So um, this is why nobody's like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Um, They're just like, nah. So uh, so this is the thing. Judah realizes that he he did something wrong, which is why he sends his friend Hira to go make the payment. Right? He doesn't want to be seen um, making making the delivery. So he sends his friend. His friend goes out, tries to find her asks around a little bit, hey, where, where is she? And they're all like, what are you talking about? There's no, there's no lady like that around here. And so eventually he comes back to Judah, and he's like, yeah, I, I couldn't find her. And so Judah's like, all right, listen, just let her, we don't, we don't want to make fools of ourselves here. Um, just let her keep the stuff. What is she going to do with them anyway? We tried to give her the goat. She wasn't around. Hey, we did our best. So he just kind of tries to sweep it under the rug and move on. <clears throat> but that's not going to happen uh Moving on in uh, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, "Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality." And Judah said, "Bring her out and let her be burned." So uh, Judah makes—he wastes no time. He's just like, "Oh, great! She did something wrong. Now we can burn her. We can get rid of this problem." And you can see his heart because he doesn't stop and say, "Well." who's the father, or what happened here, you know, what's the deal? His first instinct is, burn her, right? It's like Monty Python in a certain (laughs) sense. Um, But she's she's not going to let him off the hook that easy. Verse uh, 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify the, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Okay, so uh, when I said that this is the weirdest passage in the Bible, like maybe you're th- look, reading this now and being like, Yeah, that's pretty weird. It gets weirder because both Tamar and Judah are in the lineage of Jesus Christ, okay, which makes it even stranger, because it's like, this is a pretty sordid tale, and what? Like, you know, one of the things that the Bible definitely teaches that the ends do not justify the means, so even though Tamar was in trouble, and her dead husbands were, in a sense, in trouble, um, and she takes matters into her own hands, like, none of us would say that that was, like, the right thing to do, or that anybody should become a prostitute, right, to, to get whatever you need, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, we look at that and say, this doesn't make any sense, um, and yet we see that they're in the lineage of Christ, and Judah says, hey, you're more righteous than I, like, what? Like, okay, understand that that's not saying too much about Judah, because he's not really the great guy at this point, but um, the question is, okay, what, what do we make of this? How does this make any sense? What do we do with it? So, a couple things you need to understand about this is that uh, Tamar, like I said, she was looking out for herself, she was looking out for her husbands, but she was also lodging uh, a multifaceted moral complaint against Judah, okay? And the first one is essentially, hey... Um, I didn't get in this situation by myself, bruh, right? Like, hey, you see, you see who these belong to? They're, 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 he's all, like, ready to burn her, and, and she's basically like, oh, yeah, well, you want to know who, who did this? The guy who owns these right here. Do you know that guy? He should probably stand next to me on the fire. That would be a good idea, right? Like, she's pointing out his own sin. And while he was so judgmental of her, didn't want to take a look in the, in the opposite direction, right? So that's one moral complaint against Judah. Two, he had made a promise. He promised that he was going to provide for her to protect her with his son, Sheila. Okay? And she knew it, and he knew it, everybody knew it. He had no intention of keeping that promise. So he was a promise breaker and a liar. Three, there's, a, there's, there's an even deeper sense here where it's like Judah was the father, okay, of, of this group of kids, his kids. So, uh, her, his, Ur and uh, Onan, right? They're his own flesh and blood. And, and Tamar is his daughter, essentially. And she's pointing this out and saying, listen, Judah, you are the father of us. Like, you're, we're your kids. You're supposed to love us, okay? And you're more in love with yourself and your, like your own emotional well-being, your own lineage that you've neglected to provide and care for your own kids and provide a way for them. So there's, there's three tiers to this moral complaint, and here's the thing. Why, why are we talking about this? This series is, is about, like, you know, seeing Jesus in, in passages and things like that. Where in the world is Jesus in this passage? Well, technically, he's not really in here the way it's written, but he's supposed to be, okay? This is what we would call, or I, I would call, a blown type of Christ. So in the Bible, we see types of Christ and God and other things, symbolism, Okay? Um, one of the main blown types that comes to mind is Moses in the desert when he strikes the rock and he strikes it again. I don't have time to go into it today. If you're curious, you can find me after the service. Um, but basically, <clears throat> Judah was supposed to do something, and because he uh, didn't, he blew the type. You want to go ahead and turn to the left to Genesis chapter 3. It'll highlight this a little bit more for us. Genesis 3, give you the backstory. <clears throat> uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. God is coming out and seeing what's up, he talks to Adam, says, hey, what happened? Adam says, it's that woman you gave me. Goes to the woman, Eve, what happened? It's that serpent. And so um, this is the moment where God, the, basically the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Your translation might say seed, the same word. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what God is basically saying to the serpent is, Hey, you use the woman to bring about the downfall of man. I'm going to use a woman to bring down your, bring about your downfall. Um, and he's specifically referring to Messiah, Jesus. So this, this term, this, your seed and her seed. The, the women, women didn't have the seed in this, um, you know, in this culture. They didn't consider that. It was, it was like a misuse of the phrase, if you will. Um, so the fact that he points this out and he says this, it's, a, it's an allusion to the virgin birth, which Jesus was born of Mary and the virgin. So um, this is, this is God promising um, that he's going to make things right. And he knows what it's going to cost. It's going to cost life of his son, right? You see, Judah only had one son, one begotten son, and he was supposed to give his son to Tamar to provide for her and to um, not blot out his son's name from the land, right? Uh, In the same way, God gave us his son so that our names might not be blotted out in the Lamb's book of life. You with me? The difference is that Judah was just afraid that this was going to cost him his son, God knew exactly what it was going to cost at the time where he made this promise, okay? But God did not go back on his promise. He fulfilled it. Now, Judah, yeah, he was supposed to, had he, had he given his son, had he done it, he would have fulfilled, he would have been a type of the father and the son, right? Where father provides his only son as a way, uh, but he blew it because he did um, it, this chapter usually leaves leave people in confusion. Um, John 3 16 is the most famous, famous Bible verse in the New Testament for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God uh, follows through on his promise. The difference, one of the big differences too, is like Judah was so eager to just throw Tamar into the fire. It's funny to me that it specifically says, let's burn her. Uh, it doesn't say stone or hang or whatever. Burn, fire. And that's the judgment that, that awaits for us as well, right? If, if we, uh, if, you know, in our sins, in our natural state. And God would have been totally just, right? If God, when Adam and Eve sinned, he would have been totally just. He'd be like, you know what? <laughs> Gone. All right, start over again, Right? Nobody would be able to lodge a moral complaint against God's justice for doing that, but it might raise a question about his love. And that's one of the other differences, is that Judah loved himself and his own son, I suppose, more than his other kids and Tamar. Um, But God, this is reading 316, so love the world gave his only begotten son. And the thing is, is that it's it's not because you're so lovable that he did it, right? Definitely not because of that. And it's not even simply just because God is so loving. As 1 John 4, 8 tells us, God is love. It is who he is. And it's out of love for us um, that he gives his only son and he does not hold back. And that's a picture for us here in uh, in Genesis 38. So um, but this is only part one. We're not, we're not done yet. Part two will be a little shorter, I promise, but um, there's more to this story. Picking up in, whoops, picking up in Genesis 38, 27. When the time of her labor, Tamar, came, there were twins in her womb. I find it interesting that she had two dead husbands and God gives her two, two, two babies. So I don't know. I find that interesting. God, God working there on her behalf. And on the behalf of her wicked husbands and when she was in labor one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first so when you were having multiple babies in one delivery finding out who was the firstborn was important so you know when they're come out they got to clean them up and If you didn't mark who was the first to come out, you'd be like, wait, who was the firstborn? What? It's important to keep track of because the firstborn was going to be the head of the household once the father died, and the firstborn was also going to receive a greater inheritance than his, his brothers, right? So it was important for them to mark that. Verse 29, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So you might think by reading, so as I've said, Tamar and Judah are in the lineage of Christ. You might read this passage and think, oh, well, Zerah is going to be in the line of Christ, and he's not. Perez is, which is weird because a couple of things. One, it, it says specifically that they used a scarlet thread. Why is that detail important? God uses imagery throughout the Old Testament to make allusions to the New Testament, specifically to Jesus. So scarlet, whenever you see that in the Bible, means it's, it's, a representative, it's a representation of blood, okay, specifically the blood of Christ. One of the greatest examples, well, one is the priestly garments. You see that in the book of Leviticus and, and the law where it talks about the red that's woven into their garments. But another even more prominent one in my mind, Rahab uh, in, in uh, the book of Joshua. So Rahab was also a prostitute, also in the lineage of Christ. Uh, she hides two Israelite spies, and she sends them off, and she's like, hey, what am I going to do? I don't want to die. And they say, this is what you need to do. Take a scarlet rope, hang it out your window, and that way we'll know who not to like, kill when we come back to clean up. And so sure enough, she puts a scarlet thread out of her window. Interestingly enough, her house is built into the walls of Jericho, and when the walls come falling down, her house is the only piece that's still standing with this cord hanging out the window, signifying for us salvation comes through the blood, okay? That's, that's the imagery. Okay. Now, how does that apply to these guys? Let's go ahead and um, let's take a look over at the book of Colossians, Colossians 1. Uh, got to keep up with my notes here. Colossians 1, 13 through 20. Paul writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This phrase I want to zoom in on is the firstborn of the dead. What Paul is referring to is the fact that Jesus was a man, and he died, but he was resurrected. He came into new life after. He died, okay? So in that sense, he's what's called the firstborn of the dead. You with me so far? Okay, Perez is a type of Christ, and Zara is essentially a type of the church. Why? Perez was not the first to come out, but he was considered the firstborn. And when he came out, he was unmarked. Just like Jesus, you know, he died not because of any substitutionary atonement, not because anybody made any sacrifice for Jesus. Jesus was resurrected because he lived a sinless life, and death had no hold on him, and that was the reason for his resurrection. We, on the other hand, if we are going to come into new life, we must be marked by the blood. And Zara here, again, he, he was the first to come out, but the second to be born, almost as though... He needed to be born again. You with me on that one? Does that make sense? It blew my mind. Like, seriously. I don't know if any of you are sharing this with me, but I read that and I was like, what? Like, I, for years, this is just like confused the dickens out of me. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy. This whole thing, this whole thing. God takes this whole situation and he uses it as an image to, um, to convey, okay, how much does God love us, Right? And what's God willing to do um, for us? Crazy, man. It's a crazy story. Uh, if you want to even, on your own, you can look up Matthew 1, 1 through 16, and Luke, 23 through, uh, sorry, 3, Luke 3, 23 to 38, where there's two, two genealogies. And uh, Matthew goes from Abraham to Perez through the royal line all the way to Joseph, showing that Jesus was the royal heir to the throne of David. And Luke goes through, from Adam Perez through um, a biological line, uh, you know, just not the royal line of David, all the way to Mary, and demonstrating how um, Jesus, both these together, show that Jesus was a direct descendant of David and the rightful heir to the throne of David, fulfilling prophecy, and crazy that Perez, this and this sordid story is all a part of that. It reminds me of a quote, Uh, I'm not going to say the whole thing, but just talking about how um, you know, God takes the junk of our lives and, and makes art out of it. Um, it's exactly what he does here. None of this was, good. None of this was a good situation. Nobody, nobody did what was, they were supposed to do with Tamar and, and Judah. Um, but God intervenes, and he, he, uh, he redeems it, right? Awesome stuff. Um, so two, two things to take away for us that I, I want to just leave us with, I guess. Um, one, uh, Judah thought he was going to get away with this sin. Did not get away with this sin. And if you have hidden sin in your life that you think, oh, I I can get away with this, probably not the case, right? God knows. Um, And he's going to bring that out. And that's not a bad thing. Um, Two, looking at Judah and looking at God and the difference between what they were willing to withhold God was not willing to withhold anything. Like, you got to understand, there, there was no higher price to be paid than the Son of God. It is liter- there, there's nothing else. What are you going to do? Say, like, the whole earth is worth God? No. The whole universe? There's nothing in the universe. God's infinite, and he's, he's God. He's at the top of the food chain, so, so to speak, right? Um, there's nothing higher to be paid. God withheld nothing in order to redeem us that we might be with him um, because he loves us. And so the question is, okay... What are some things in our lives that we are withholding from God? Do we have a right to withhold anything from God? Do we have anything that's even close to being worth what Jesus is worth? Like, imagine that, you know, you had your... For those of you who have kids, this will be easier. You have, a, you have a child, and you have a stranger. And let's just say the, their lives hang in the balance somehow. I don't know. And you've got to make the choice. Who's going to live? Your own child or a total stranger? Well, most of you uh, are probably going to choose your own child. Why? Because, well... If you think about it, it's a life versus a life. It's kind of an apples-to-apples comparison. It's just, you know, you you care about this apple more. Makes sense. I'm not judging anybody for it. It makes total sense, okay? And then you have Jesus and humanity, not an apples-to-apples sort of comparison, right? Not even close, not even in the ballpark. And so it made total sense for God to just go, bye humanity, see ya. Uh, But that's not who he is, right? God is love, and it's because of his love for us that he sends his only son to die for us and take our place. And so, um, take a look at your life. What are are the things you're withholding? Are you withholding your own comfort, your own job security, uh, your own dreams, your own kids? What, you know? People withhold their kids all the time from God, if you can believe it, because they're afraid that what? They might get hurt or they might die or they might not get a good job or something like that, right, that happens all the time what are we withholding from God? What are we withholding from God? Take, take inventory this week um, and see what, what the Lord shows you. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come on up. We're going to close in a song. Um, and, and one other thing I'll say, if you are here today and you've never received uh, the free gift that God offers, you've got to understand, like, he loves you and he has gone through such great lengths that you could be a part of his family, okay? That's what he wants. But it takes you making that step. You've got to accept it, and you, gotta, you have to receive it. It's not going to force you to. Um, You've got to make that, that statement. And so if you need help with that, you want to talk to me or Ezra or somebody. Anybody here in this room will probably help you with that. So do it. Do it, do it immediately because today is the day. All right, let's pray, and we're going to close.